Well, good evening. We are going to continue with some of the thoughts from the lesson this morning, uh, particularly uh, we're going to be discussing the, the topic of baptism and some of the questions that can pop up in people's minds as they look at baptism, particularly as it is practiced throughout uh, church history and as it's practiced today widely. Um, we practice baptism here, and we take baptism very seriously here. We, we immerse people uh, in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of their sins, and that is something that I think we have a uh, very strong theological undergirding for why we do it. I think you can go right to the Bible and you can put your finger on verses and you can say this is what the Bible says to do and I think you can read those passages and you can see that there's depth uh, and there's reasons for why the Bible speaks of, of baptism that way. Um, and so we are going to talk about baptism, and we're going to talk about some of the, uh, the things that we do and why we do them. Uh, we're, we're going to kind of divide the lesson up into three questions. Three questions that when people hear about how we practice baptism, three questions that might emerge uh, in their minds. Uh, and again, these are, not, um, these are not the types of questions that, uh, I guess I'm going to say, these are common questions. These aren't overly deep or anything like that, but they're just pretty obvious observations uh, that people might notice when they see the way that we practice baptism. Uh, by and large, we are somewhat unique in how we practice baptism. Uh, what I mean by that is we practice baptism by immersion. And I'll say, talking about immersion, there are many others who do the same. In fact, that has been practiced as long as the church uh, has, has been around. Uh, but if you were to look at um, all of the religious world today, it is very common, uh, including Catholicism, which is a huge, huge number, uh, it is common to practice uh, sprinkling or, or pouring or things like that. So, so we have a good number of people on our side, if you want to call it that, uh, when it talks about immersion. Um, but that's something that, uh, that we might not be in the majority on. Uh, that's not to say that anyone, I don't know of any group who's against immersion. Uh, I think pretty much universally, uni immersion is, is a valid form of baptism. But there are some who practice additional forms of baptism, uh, like sprinkling and pouring. Um, but the other question is uh, the idea of doing it for the forgiveness of sins. And this is also something that we are in the majority on. Uh, if you look throughout church history and even in the religious world today, like for example, Catholicism does practice baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that, that, that has always been the, the Catholic belief. And again, that's a huge number. And so that, that uh, if you're looking at, you know, counting the number of people on your side, uh, we, we have quite a few on our side when it comes to baptism for the forgiveness of sins. What is unique about us is that we practice baptism for the forgiveness of sins and we practice immersion in believer's baptism, which is uh, baptism among adults who are putting their faith in Jesus. And you actually don't see in the religious world those two ideas combined too often. You see a lot of people who baptize for the forgiveness of sins, but they sprinkle poor and baptize infants. You see a lot of people who immerse, but they do not do it for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, we do both. Uh, and so when you look at that, it kind of makes us uh, somewhat unique in our practice of baptism. Uh, and again, uh, I think we have good biblical and theological grounds for that. And so uh, in the lesson, we're going to talk about some of those things. But I also want to say from the get-go that it's ironic and sad that baptism, which in the New Testament, and we talked about it this morning, is supposed to be this unifying act that brings people together uh, in Christ, 
has become one of the most divisive topics in Christianity and in the history of Christianity. And I wish that weren't the case. Uh, I wish uh, that, uh, that baptism wasn't something that it's kind of, I mean, I think the similar thing could be said about the Lord's Supper, which is intended to be a unity meal, but is so often uh, practiced in divisive ways, or there's so much argument or, or uh, rhetoric against others about it. Some, I, I was listening to someone one time, and they were at one of the largest uh, uh, ecumenical uh, church meetings in, in the world. I think it was in Brazil. And they had had like all kinds of people from every Christian group and denomination imaginable. And the whole point of it was we need to quit bickering with each other. We need to find out ways to get along. So they sang songs together. They prayed together. And then they all went to their own little groups to take the Lord's Supper. Because, because there's, there's even among others, out, you know, Sometimes churches of Christ get a bad rap for being divisive. Uh, if you look closely, pretty much everyone is divisive, depending on their doctrine that they care about and, and their core issue. And so, to me, it's a tragedy that something that is intended to be uniting has become uh, something that is uh, so divisive. And so, I want to say, as we go through this, I'm not, I'm, I'm not teaching this out of any sort of feeling of animosity towards those who have a different understanding. It's not that, I'm, that I dislike those people or anything like that, but I do think it's valuable if we practice something and we take it seriously, and especially if it's a somewhat unique practice, we should probably give some reasons for why we do that and be able to answer some questions for why we do that. And so uh, that's what we're gonna do here in the lesson tonight. So the first question we're gonna answer is, if people do have to be baptized, uh, if that's, that is actually part of the salvation process, if that is something that we do in response to the gospel, then doesn't that make baptism a work that merits salvation? And isn't Paul pretty clear that we do not merit our salvation through works? And so if baptism is a work and you don't do works to merit salvation, then that means you don't do baptism to merit salvation, right? That, that's a question that we would get asked. And I would the way that's worded, I would say I absolutely agree you don't, you know, receive baptism to merit salvation, Keyword being merit. Um, but I do think baptism is an appropriate, uh, obedient response. It's a way of saying yes to the offer of salvation. And I don't think that that causes any theological problems uh, at all with Paul's doctrine of salvation by faith or uh, his, his teachings on works. Um, if we continue our Exodus motif that we started this morning and that Paul uses quite a few times when he talks about baptism, to me, if you were to read the story of the Exodus and you were to see the 10 plagues, which the Israelites did not do on their own, and you were to see the overthrow of the Egyptians, you were to see the children of Israel led out of Egypt and they were brought to the Red Sea and then God split the Red Sea for them and then they crossed the Red Sea and the waters crashed down upon the armies of the Egyptians. It would be an absolute embarrassing misreading of the text to say, well, because they had to walk across, they then merited and earned the, the victory over the Egyptians. So that means that grace is nullified in that story. Uh, no, you know, like God is the one who did everything. They did walk across the sea on dry land. They had to, to accept what God has done. They had to go down the path he paved for them, but God was the one who paved the path. God was the one who was at work. God was the one who saved them wholly and entirely. It was a complete act of grace. They did have to go along with it though. And, and, and to me, to say that if, to say that being baptized or, or saying that baptism is necessary 
means that it is a work that renders grace void would be the same thing as saying that walking across the Red Sea would have rendered God's salvation from the Egyptians void. Like that, it's a misunderstanding of grace. It's a misunderstanding of works. It's a misunderstanding of, of faith and, and of obedience. Um, God is the one who saves us. Full stop. God is the one who, through his grace, he conquers the powers of sin and darkness and death, and we get to receive the, 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 the benefits of that. We get to receive that as a gift from God. But I don't think that implies that we don't respond to God in a positive manner to receive it. And this gets us into what I think is uh, so often confusing that some of the idea of works and faith and obedience and the way that Paul talks about all of those different topics. Um, I would say if you're going to read Romans, this is, this is an exercise I would tell anyone to do. Uh, get out a Bible concordance or get on blueletterbible.com, you know, get on some sort of Bible website and one that will tell you where different words are used in the books and look up the word obedience in Romans and then look up the word works in Romans and see if those are the same thing. Because a lot of times they get treated as though they're equals and it, it, obeying God is a work. And so therefore, you can't say that obedience or works is a necessary part of salvation. And I would say if you look at how Paul uses those words, he does not use obedience and works the same at all. As a matter of fact, throughout Romans, he's kind of negative towards works. And he's quite clear that if you think works are a part of this thing, then, then you're going to be indebted to God. Because if you think you have to do works, then look at all of the, the ways that you have not pleased God. And all of a sudden, you've, you've built up this system where you're weighing the pros and the cons, and the cons are going to win every time. And so there's no way through works you could, you could uh, attain your own salvation. Like, like, if you're thinking of works as a means of justification, and if you're thinking that God is going to, to measure out, you know, how much good you've done, then then once you go to that system, as soon as you have sin, you, you're, you're out of the game because doing good works doesn't erase the sin that you, you need something else to forgive sin. Like Paul, when he speaks about works, is speaking about, I think first and foremost, through in the majority of the contexts, he's talking about particular works of the law of Moses that he, that Jews felt gave them special status before God. So things like circumcision, which would exclude the Gentiles unless they were circumcised also. And if you force them to be circumcised, then that's a work that you're forcing upon them. It's a work of law, and it is something that they would have to do in order to maintain. Paul is usually using works to mean something like that, that is excluding people based on Torah. But even if we, we expand it to the idea of merit, I think Paul is against the idea of thinking that we can earn salvation through works and good deeds where God owes us then salvation. So that would be excluded too. But he never uses obedience to God in that way. Obedience to God from, the be from beginning to end is actually... I think very similar to how he uses the word faith. I don't think there's actually, a, I think obedience is much closer to his use of the word Greek word pistis, which is faith, than it is his, his uh, use of the word works. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, look with me at Romans chapter 4 just really quickly. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 uh, quickly, and notice, notice the contrast between works 
and belief or faith. Belief and faith is the same Greek word. Um, and so in uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is credited as a favor, not as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who, notice this, does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Think about verse 5 for a second. The one who does not work, but believes. That is not the same thing as saying the one who does not obey God but believes in him. Paul would never encourage Christians to not obey God. Uh, he's clearly using faith and works as actual like opposites there. They, they, you either works or faith, and he does not do that with uh, obedience. So, so verse 5, to the one who does not work, so that means not working is a good thing uh, in, in the book of Romans. He says, but believes in him. Notice what that faith or that belief is credited as in verse 5. His faith is credited as righteousness. So works don't bring about righteousness, but faith brings about righteousness apart from works or without works. Okay, keep that in your mind, and let's look at our passage from this morning in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses uh, 17 and following. Sorry, in ver verse 16 and following. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourself as someone's slave for obedience, so this is his word obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether sin resulting in death or of, notice this, obedience resulting in righteousness. That word righteousness is the same word that he uses in uh, chapter 4 and verse uh, 5 that says faith is credited as righteousness. Like, faith gives you righteousness. Obedience gives you righteousness. Works does not. Because by works, he means something different. Like I said, he's usually talking about particular works of Torah that excluded Gentiles and gave special status to Jews. Uh, that is not what Paul is calling on the church uh, to, to do, to engage in works like circumcision or maybe some of the food laws or those types of things. He's talking instead about obedience to Christ, which he calls faith or pistis, or I think a good translation of it is allegiance. Pistis, which is the Greek word for faith, I think means an obedient belief. It's not just the idea of like a mental assent to a few things or, or, or thinking some things are true. It actually impacts, it's a whole body and soul response of, uh, in, in, in allegiance and loyalty and in obedience to Jesus. And that's why he'll say things like, notice how the book of Romans begins talking about what his mission is among the Gentiles. Romans 1.5 he mentions Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake. The obedience of faith. Obedience and faith are good in Paul's writings. Works bad. So obedience and faith result in righteousness, and they are the very reason that he's bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring about obedient faith among them. Uh, you can look at the very end of Romans. And you'll see the same thing, Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> Romans 16, uh, you can look at verse 19. Here's one example of uh, him using obedience. And he uses obedience quite a few times, and every time it's a good thing. Uh, but Romans 16 verse 19, 
He says, for the report of your obedience has reached all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So, so there he talks about your obedience. It's great. He, he doesn't say that type of thing about the word works or works of law. Uh, but then you look at the very end of Romans 16. Look at verse 26. He's talking about the gospel is now manifested and, uh, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations slash Gentiles, that's the same word, leading to obedience of faith. And so again, if you look up the word obedience, it's very similar to his use of faith. He joins the words together a lot. He says they both result in righteousness. And obedience is the word that he uses when he talks about baptism in Romans chapter 6, where you obey that form of teaching that was given to you. You responding to the gospel with baptism is an act of obedience. Paul's a big fan of that. Paul is not a big fan of works that divide and separate you from others or would try to merit you salvation. And so... Just really quickly, I think, it's, I think it's a misunderstanding of words like works and obedience and, and faith. But also, baptism isn't ever even called a work. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a category error to put baptism into Paul's category of works. The only time baptism is called a work uh, is, that I know of is in Colossians chapter 2, where it is explicitly called a work of God that he does. Baptism is a work that God performs on us. So if, I'll just read it. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 in verse 11. He says, In him, in Christ, you were circumcised uh, <clears throat> with a circumcision made without hands by the removal of the body by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So God had to work to raise Jesus from the dead. That was a work that God did, the resurrection. When you're baptized, you put your trust and your faith in God to work again. And the same work that he did in raising Jesus from the dead is the work that he does to raise you to newness of life, to raise you from the death of sin, to raise you to eternal life. And so the whole act of baptism, it's an act of trust and faith in God. It is, I think, an act of obedience to what we are called to do, but it is not the type of work that you would do that would merit salvation any more than crossing the Red Sea is. Uh, it's not a work that merits salvation uh, that would exclude Gentiles who have not been uh, circumcised. You know, that's just not the way it is. Baptism is an act of faith and trust in God. It's a demonstration of a loyalty and obedience to God. And it's the work that God does to cut away sin from your life and to forgive you. In fact, if you keep reading Colossians, which we won't because I have some other questions to get to, uh, he gives a pretty detailed list of the type of work that God does when you're baptized. He makes you alive together with him. He, he canceled out your certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was against you, which was hostile to you. He took that out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Like that, Those are all depictions of the work that's taking place in the invisible realm behind the scenes when a person is baptized. That's the work that God is doing. It's, it's a really vivid and powerful picture, but it is not the same thing as saying, oh, you don't need to be baptized because that's a work and you don't do works to go to heaven. Uh, that's, that's not how Paul uses it uh, at all. And that's not how he uses the word works or obedience or faith in Romans. I think just to conclude this point, it's really important to note that baptism, um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're reading it in Greek, and I think also in English, uh, whenever you see the word baptism or be baptized, that command, be baptized, that is a passive act. 
So it's something that is done to you. You be baptized. That means someone or something else is working, and you are receiving it. So baptism, like, it's not really something you do. It's something you receive, unless you're the one baptizing someone. I guess you do it then. But but when you're baptized, it's it's something that you're receiving. You are being baptized by someone else, and God is the one doing the work. And I think that that passive act is actually an essential part of this. In the same way that uh, when someone dies, they don't bury themselves. They are buried. Uh, when someone is baptized, they are baptized by another. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, this then leads to questions about, okay, well, what if you're alone on a desert island and you have a Bible and there's a pool of water right there and there's no one to baptize you? Can you baptize yourself? I would say go for it. <laughs> you know, I would just try to do the best you can in that situation. I don't know that that's right, but, <laughs> but that's not the circumstance that the Bible is talking about when it's talking about being baptized. I think generally, yes, the, there's there is significance to the fact that it is done by another, and you are completely passive in it. You are receiving, an, you are receiving a grace from God. And so baptism is not a work. You don't even do anything in it. You stand there, and someone else lowers you. Someone else brings you up out of the water, and God is the one who cuts away your sins and makes you alive together. So I would not agree that baptism is a work that merits salvation. Um, and so I don't think that baptism causes any problems with, with the doctrine of salvation by faith. Um, <coughs> second question is, okay, well, uh, we, we practice baptism here. Uh, we always practice it as immersion. Uh, so what about sprinkling and pouring? Are those acceptable forms of baptism? Uh, does baptism count if someone has been sprinkled or poured? And again, uh, I, I, there are going to be questions that we'll see what God does, but I don't have access to the information of what God will do on the day of judgment. I do have access to the Bible. And so if we're going to try to do things biblically, I think our answer to that is, is that immersion is the proper form of baptism. That's the only way you see it done in the, in the New Testament. And that whole idea of being baptized by another, there's a picture there. In the picture, we read about it this morning. It's the picture of engaging in what Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and was raised. Baptism is called a burial. Like throughout the New Testament, uh, I mean, not, not every passage, but quite a few passages will refer to baptism as a burial with Christ. You are buried with him. Well, the image of burial is not, <laughs> that's a horrible burial, like uh, to sprinkle some dirt on a, on a corpse. Uh, a burial is actually a burial. And baptism is pictured as us sharing in the burial with Jesus. And so I think if you remove that image from it, you're removing the, some of the significance of us enacting the same story as Jesus. He died, was buried, and was raised, and we are enacting that through baptism. And so uh, one thing I think, immersion is important because it gets the picture right of what's actually taking place. Uh, I think another reason immersion is important because that's the only way you see it practiced in the New Testament. We, we don't have any examples of, uh, in, of, uh, of sprinkling or of pouring or anything like that as a substitute for baptism. Um, and notice I said as a substitute for baptism because I'm using baptism to mean immersion. Uh, but, uh, but as a substitute for immersion, one of the reasons that I would use just the word baptism to mean immersion is because baptism or baptizo or, or you know, the, the Greek word, that's the verb form of it, uh, but that is a Greek word. So, so this is one of those words where uh, 
it's called a transliteration where they just take the Greek word and you say it in English, basically. You, you uh, make it an English word. Uh, and so you're saying a Greek word whenever you say baptize or baptism. Uh, but that Greek word means immerse uh, or dip. And this is important because uh, this is where you get into translation a little bit. Um, if you look up the English word baptize, it means immerse or it means pour or it means sprinkle, and it's generally associated with Christianity or religion. That's what the English word means. If you look up the Greek word, it, it, it doesn't mean all of that. Uh, it's generally a word that means to dip or to immerse. And the reason uh, that's important is because it was not a, a Christian word. Like this isn't a spiritual word, a religious word, a holy word. It's just a word that means to immerse. Like, like, our, like if I were to just say the secular word for putting something underwater, I would just say immerse. Well, early Christians, if they were talking about doing the dishes and they took a cup and they put it under the water, they would use the word baptize. Uh, if you talked about a ship that sank and went under the water, you would use the word baptize. In fact, if you look at secular uses of the word, those are actual examples of, of outside of the New Testament, just in Greek literature. That's, the, that's all the word meant, just to go underwater. And so, so sometimes I think uh, translations can be tricky because the English word baptize no longer means the same thing that the Greek word baptizo means. And so the question is, is, is it still a, a good translation or should we maybe translated it with a different word, like immerse, uh, which I think would probably be a, a pretty safe thing to do. I think similar to the word church, you know, the, if you were to look up what does the English word church means? Well, a church building is one thing that it means. Like, that's what the English word church means. And, and I hear preachers get up there and say, the word church does not mean church building. But it kind of does, because church is an English word, and that English word means a building. And so, so what you mean is ecclesia, which is the Greek word. That doesn't mean church building. Uh, but we translate that with a word that does mean church building. And so uh, rather than, you know, me getting mad at people thinking of this building as the church, I think maybe it's a different translation of the Greek word ecclesia would be a good thing, you know, like the word assembly or, or something like that. that. That captures the heart of the word more than the English word church, because the English word church has a, has a wide, it might mean denomination, which isn't really what ecclesia means. It might mean a church building, which isn't really what ecclesia means. And so, so whenever you're translating, sometimes as language develops, you have to rethink uh, what is the best way to capture the meaning of this word? But some words have become so traditional, like church and baptism, that we will always stick with those, even if the English word no longer really reflects the meaning of the Greek word, if that makes sense. That's a little tangent. But, uh, but, but sometimes I think that's an important thing to think about when you're reading your, your Bible. But one thing that's interesting about the word baptism, here's just another example of how the, the Greek word baptism um, does not mean to sprinkle or to pour. It, 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 pouring has, has a pretty ancient uh, history in Christianity. As a matter of fact, the, the earliest document we have outside of the New Testament, uh, or one of the earliest documents, uh, it's, it's a Greek text called the Didache, um, and it means the teaching, or it's the teaching of the 12 apostles to the nations. Uh, but it is, it's a pretty cool text. Like, I think anyone, like, you can get online and read it, and I would encourage you to do it. It's fun. Uh, and it's really cool to see 
the way early Christians thought about a lot of issues shortly after the time of the New Testament, you get to see some perspectives. And some of them are pretty interesting and pretty good. Some of them I might not be completely comfortable with, but, uh, but you read through it and you say, okay, so you're getting a really good historical look at early Christianity right after the New Testament. Uh, it might even be late first century document. It might be early second century, but it's somewhere in that time frame. Um, and it's, it's, almost like a catechism, which is like a, a teaching or an explanation of, of the Christian faith. It just, it gives you some ethics. It gives you Christian practices of like the Lord's Supper and baptism. And uh, it, it records the whole Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter six, right in there. Uh, and it also has uh, some, uh, some teachings about like different offices or, or, uh, or the, the structure of the church a little bit. So it has, it has some interesting stuff in it that gives you a neat, interesting perspective. But one of the things that it has is it's the first reference that we have historically of pouring done for baptism among Christians. And it, so, it, so it tells you, that goes back really early, but there's some interesting things about the way that it talks about pouring. And I'm going I'm to read it really quickly, uh, the section on baptism. It says, now about baptism, this is how to baptize. Give public instruction on all these points. Okay, so that means basically everything he's said up to this point in the, in the Dedicate, okay, like all of this teaching, give, the, give this public instruction on all of this, these points, and then baptize in running water, like a river or something like that, uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But then he starts giving us some contingencies in case you can't do, that's the perfect setting for a baptism. Go out to a river, baptize after, after reading all of these things, and then baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what happens if you don't have a river? Well, if you don't have running water, baptize in some other. Uh, if you cannot in cold, then in warm, which may be a reference to like cold being like a natural body of water, like a lake, warm being more like a, a mikvah or, or a, 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 an immersion pool designed for baptism. Um, but if not in cold, then in warm. And if you have neither, so this means what happens if you have someone who you're gonna baptize and you don't have a river, you don't have a baptistry, you don't have a lake, you don't have like water to immerse this person. If neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. Um, it tells me a couple of things. One, it tells me that uh, baptism was given to people who seemed to be old enough to be able to understand the instructions of the first few chapters of the Didache, because you're supposed to read that first. And so, so baptism is something that is a, a a decision made by uh, people uh, who have developed enough to be able to think and to accept the Christian faith. But then also, it tells you that uh, baptism was first and foremost done by immersion. Like that, that was the standard practice. The, you only see if you don't have a lake, if you don't have a river, if you don't have a baptistry, if you have no water, what do you do? Do you just not baptize them? Well, no, they would say, then maybe then you go to the next measure, measure which is the pour on the, the head three times. But a couple things are fascinating about that. One, it shows that the standard practice was immersion, but also it shows that baptism was held of such importance that it's not something you put off until you find a river, and it's not something you put off for some other time. It's something that if you don't have enough water to immerse, you still do it. You just do it by pouring on the head three times. And so uh, I, I guess there are a couple things. One, it shows, I think, belief 
believer's baptism and that they're old enough to believe. I think it demonstrates that baptism is done by immersion, but I think it shows that baptism is so important that you don't put it off if there's no water. You find some other thing to do. Now, I'm not saying that's a biblical suggestion, but I am saying that seems to be what the early church thought about, about baptism. But one final point about it that's fascinating is when he talks about baptizing in a river like living water or running water, or in cold or in warm, he uses the word baptize. That's not the word that he uses when he says pour on the head three times. He uses a different verb. Why? Because the word baptism does not mean pour. So he has to use the word that means pour in order to pour it on the head three times. And so again, that shows you that baptism, just the word itself, if you're going to be baptized, that means to be immersed. Um, And so that's why we here practice immersion. Uh, And it just goes back to the meaning of the word, the picture in the New Testament, the way people did it in the New Testament, and uh, the way it was practiced among the early church. And I think those are pretty sound, good reasons for doing that. Um, (coughs) Finally, the third question uh, is, okay, well then what about uh, baptizing infants? Uh, We we don't do that. When we have a child that's born here, I thought it was awesome what we did uh, last Sunday morning when uh, when Tom Langley uh, got up and and we prayed over uh, this child, wishing uh, and and praying for God's blessings uh, upon this child throughout their life and this family and the parents, and we gave them a Bible and we we dedicated uh, uh, the, the child, and I think that's a wonderful thing to do, but we didn't baptize the child. Um, this is something that we would be in, in the minority on at this point in time in, in church history. And if you look throughout church history, infant baptism does go back a very long ways, and it was, it's been practiced. So why is it that we would reject that? Well, again, uh, I, think, uh, I think the simple answer is we don't see it in the, in the New Testament at all. Um, everyone in the New Testament who is baptized, um, the, it's, it's a person who's old enough to put their faith in Christ, because baptism is an act of obedience, and it's an act of faith. And if you don't know what to obey, and you aren't old enough to have faith, then it's really hard to have a meaningful baptism the way it was done in the New Testament. Um, But I think it's interesting when you kind of look at, at the history of infant baptism, we don't have record of it uh, in the New Testament. We don't have record of it for a good long while after the New Testament. The first undisputed record of it that I know of is Tertullian, which is about 200 AD. So we're talking about, you know, 170 years after Christ. Um, And we see a reference of it there, but even Tertullian is against the practice but he does mention the practice. So that tells us it's happening, uh, but it, it, it might not be uh, super widespread at that point, but it's, it's happening enough to mention it. And one of the things that he says is he thinks that people need to be able to ask for baptism at least. You know, people need to be able to have a recognition of who Christ is and be able to ask for baptism in order to receive it. That's how baptism will fulfill its actual purpose in, in, in a person giving their allegiance to Christ. He does mention emergency cases for younger baptisms. And when you look, this is archaeologically, some of our earliest evidence of infant baptism is on uh, uh, tragic stories where a child has died. And you can see record of when the child was born, when the child received grace or baptism, and when the child died. And one of our first uh, references is, is a child who was two, and they received grace or baptism the day they were, uh, the day they passed. And that, that tells you something. Uh, it seems as though there was an emergency situation where a child was going to die, and the Christians were thinking, well, what, what should we do? Should we just have 
an unbaptized child die? I mean, or do, do you take the next step? We have a couple of, of these, uh, these uh, archaeological finds. Well, one thing I think is important to note is when you, if you were to look at church, like literature in the churches of Christ on baptism, and you were to ask what is the most commonly cited passage we use to talk about baptism, it's probably going to be Acts 2.38. I've even seen some, some records that indicate this, not just uh, anecdotal, but people have counted up. And Acts 2.38 is a, is a home run passage for us. Uh, you know, uh, Acts 2.38 has, repent and be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ with the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Awesome verse, powerful verse. Talks about repentance, talks about baptism, combines them together. It's the first day of the church. Monumental moment, great passage. But if you were to count up all of the early Christian, like, I'm talking like for the first thousand years, what passages they used to talk about baptism, you know what number one far and away is? It's actually not Acts 2.38. It's John chapter 3 and verse 5. John chapter 3 and verse 5 uh, says, this is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and he says those uh, famous words that unless one is born of water, uh, or sorry, except one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, is verse 3. And then verse 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So think about that passage. Unless one is born of water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That can be taken in an absolute sense, which means you need to be born of water and spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. In water and spirit, that water in the, in the Holy Spirit was seen unanimously in the early church as a reference to baptism, which I think we should still read it that way. Uh, but, uh, but so if you have a child who you know is sick and at the point of death, and you have a verse that says, unless one is born of water and spirit, they can't enter the kingdom of God, as just a measure of, of just you know, checking all your boxes or at least trying to make sure you're safe and doing everything you can for the child, I think it, that seems to be some of the earliest practices how, of how it started. What's interesting is that became a common practice uh, for the safety of children when they are born. Let's just make sure we, we, we don't leave anything uh, up to chance. And so you practice baptism in that way, even for youngsters. Um, in the time you get to like the 4th and 5th century, uh, we have a, a, a famous guy, I talked about him last week, named Augustine. Um, and Augustine was writing against the Pelagians. And the Pelagians held the view that children are born innocent, meaning there's no original sin. They, uh, the human beings were not tainted by the sin of Adam, and so you're born innocent and pure and, and, and good and godly and all of that. Um, but the Pelagians did practice infant baptism. And so Augustine, in his uh, efforts to discredit and to argue against the Pelagians, would say, wait a minute, you practice infant baptism. You can go to a passage like Acts 2.38, and baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. So how could you say that babies are pure if you're practicing baptism for the forgiveness of sins? That implies that they have sin. And since there's no sin they could have committed at that point because they're infants and babies, then the only sin they could have is original sin, or it's the sin of Adam that was inherited. And so he actually used the practice of infant baptism to argue for the truth of original sin, which has since, I think, been flipped, where people a lot of times will say, well, because you're born in sin, you need to be baptized. It seems as though in the early church, the practice of infant baptism 
occurred before the belief in original sin, and belief in original sin seemed like a necessary result of baptizing children. Well, why would you baptize someone for the forgiveness of sins if they don't have sin? And if they haven't committed sin, what kind of sin can they have? Well, they must have original sin. And so all of that kind of shows some of the historical development as to how this became a very common practice and the relationship between uh, baptism and original sin and infants and all of that. Uh, for further reading, or if you like YouTube, you can look up lectures. Uh, I would suggest Everett Ferguson. Uh, he is a longtime professor, or uh, uh, was a longtime professor at Abilene Christian. I actually was able to, to hear him one time, which was really cool. Um, but uh, he, he's done tremendous work on, uh, on the history of baptism. He has a really thick book, uh, Baptism in the First Four Centuries, and he talks about virtually everything you could possibly want to know about early baptism in the early church. But all of that is to say we can see kind of how that started. The reason we don't practice that is because you don't see any of those things in the New Testament. Um, you do see baptism associated with faith. You see it associated with repentance. Uh, a, there's nothing a child can repent of, and a child doesn't even know what the word repent means, and a child couldn't repent of anything because it can't make the conscious decision to make those types of changes. So some of the things associated with baptism, like repent and be baptized, cannot be done by a child or, or, or an infant or a baby. Uh, and so we wait until someone is old enough to repent and be baptized. Uh, if you're not old enough to name Jesus as Lord, and if you're not old enough to repent, then you can't do the other things that are called upon for baptism. And so uh, that's why we, we uh, practice baptism among those who are old enough to put their own faith in Christ. Um, I think the closest thing you get to a potential infant baptism, and this is generally what, if you're, you're talking to someone, this is generally what will be brought up, is uh, you do have some household conversions, some household baptisms, like in the book of Acts, uh, where the Philippian jailer, it says he and all of his household were baptized. And so, well, if he had young children, what does that mean? If all of his household were baptized? But even that, the way I worded that, even doing my best, you still have to say, if he had children uh, who were infants or, or babies, and we simply don't know. It's, it's, it's an assumption that's made, and maybe historically it would have been, you know, likely, but I, I just don't think you can read through the New Testament and see no examples of it, see the theology of baptism uh, associated with being able to believe and repent, and then read a passage that says someone in this family were baptized, and then just throw in the assumption that must he must have young children, and they must be included in that. Seems like a stretch to me to build an entire doctrine out of. I think a much better thing to say is baptism is for those who can choose to put their faith in Christ, to turn their lives over to Christ and receive baptism by immersion, and that some of these other views uh, are things that, that developed later over time, and you can even see how they developed. You can, you can look historically, you can see where they start becoming popular, uh, who begins to popularize them, and what beliefs lead to certain practices, and what practices lead to certain beliefs. And we, as a restoration church, are doing our best to do things as biblically as we can. And so because of that, we practice baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we practice it by immersion, and we practice it by those old enough to put their faith in Jesus and repent of their sins. And uh, so that is something that I, I feel confident in our practice of, and, uh, and I think that we will continue doing uh, as long as I, you know, as long as, long as we have a good eldership. <laughs> but, uh, but if there's anyone here uh, tonight who you're looking at your life and uh, 
maybe you know you've drifted from what God has called you to be, or if there's anyone here who would like to be baptized, uh, we would love to help you with that. We could baptize you tonight for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have the need, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.